Very good. You can see we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. <laughs> we'll uh, touch on the high points, and we won't quite get to all of that, but uh, that's the scope of today's message as we talk about deliverance. And let me pray as we begin. Father, thank you again for these awesome stories. They are just wonderful examples of your power, your grace, your wisdom, your love. There is no one like you. And I pray that we would leave today after we look at your word just marveling at who you are and your wonderful plan of salvation for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just recap briefly where we have been and where we're going. We started with week one talking about how God's grand vision is to be with us. That God created man so that we might have fellowship with him for eternity. But there's a problem. Man chose to rebel against God and sin entered our world and our sin separates us from God. So God starts over again in the story with Noah and his family. But there is a problem. Even after the flood, sin remains. And then God's plan is to build a new nation and he starts through Abraham and he calls this man who had come out of pagan idolatry to be the one that he's going to use to begin this new nation. And we follow the story of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and the 12 sons and Joseph who goes into Egypt. But even there, we see that sin is still present. It is there in Abraham, it's there in Isaac and Jacob and his children after him. We see dysfunction, we see the fruit of sin. But we also see God at work. And the question remains, how will God overcome our sin that separates us from him? How is God going to deal with the problem of man's sin so that we could be restored to fellowship with him? Well, that's what the story is about. The story is about God's relentless pursuit of us. And in this chapter, we're going to move from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, we will see a dramatic picture of how God will deliver us from our bondage to sin. Let's take a look. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 1. If you have the book, The Story, it's on page 43 that we begin. And we start by seeing that God's new nation is oppressed in Egypt. They are living in Egypt and they now become slaves to this new pharaoh. But 400 years have passed, okay? From the time that Joseph went down into Egypt, 400 years have passed. And during that time, God has really protected Israel. They've been in kind of an incubator situation, if you will. This fledgling nation, this nation that God's going to bring into the promised land, has been protected from enemy attacks by Egypt. It's been protected from the threat of intermarriage because of the Egyptians' disdain of shepherds. And Israel has grown to a population of somewhere around 2 million, maybe 2 to 3 million people at this time. And God has been at work preparing this new nation. But now what we read in the story in Exodus 1 is that a new Pharaoh arose who did not know about Joseph. And he viewed Israel as a threat. Take a look in your Bibles. I'd like to read for us uh, chapter 1 beginning at verse 8 or again on page 43 in the story. It says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, 
The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. You can see that their situation in Egypt has become quite difficult indeed. Not only were they enslaved and being worked hard to build these great monuments to the pharaohs, but the pharaoh now ordered the death of every newborn Hebrew boy. He ordered that their midwives, if they came and a woman gave birth to a boy, that boy was to be put to death. We will read later they were to be thrown into the Nile. If you go back to Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, 500 years before these things happened, God had told Abraham what was going to occur in Egypt. And he said, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. I think sometimes what people who are skeptical of the Bible miss is that they don't understand that the Bible was not written by one human author and put together as sort of a story with these details that will all line up neatly. Now the Bible was written by 40 different human authors over a period of 1500 years and great centuries span these stories that we look at. And sometimes it's even hard for us to, you know, remember that or to step back and say, oh yeah, that's right. Abraham lived around the year 2000 B.C. These events are taking place when Moses was born in the year 1526 B.C. and the Exodus 1446 B.C. And so this great span of time has passed. But God told Abraham exactly what was going to happen. Well, one question sometimes people have too then is, well, since God predicted this slavery, did he cause it? No, he did not. It resulted from the fear and sin nature of the Egyptian people. God knew what was going to happen, but he is not the cause of the evil or wickedness in our world. If you think about this in terms of that upper story, lower story perspective too, And the lower story here where Israel is living enslaved by their enemies, the Egyptians now, things look pretty grim. I mean, Egypt was the major dominant power at that time in the Middle East. And these uh, great pyramids, they were even there when Abraham went down into Egypt. I mean, they were built before Abraham lived. And that's kind of stunning to think about the pyramids at Giza or some of those places where uh, you can see the ruins. And yet here now are the Israelites enslaved building other monuments to their gods. And all around them as Israel grew up, they would see these great monuments and the Egyptians worshipped many gods that supposedly controlled every aspect of life. 
from the sun and the stars and the heavens and nature and agriculture, fertility and the Nile and all of those things. They worship their gods. Who is Israel? This little nation that is enslaved to their enemies who worship one God. Is that all you have? Is that all you got? Who is this God? And how will God deliver his people? Well, what God does is that God raises up a man through whom he will deliver his people. And we see that in Exodus chapters 2 through 4. His name is Moses. And he's born at this time when Hebrew baby boys are being drowned in the Nile. Let me read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is on page 44 in the story. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Can you imagine the situation in your own mind if you were a mother whose baby was to be killed, and you wanted with all your heart to save and protect that child, but you could not? And that baby is now three months old, and what can you do? And the only thing that you can think of is to put him in a basket and coat that basket like a little boat and put him in it in the Nile and pray that God would somehow rescue or spare his life. Putting that baby in the Nile, I mean, there were dangers. There were dangers from crocodiles or hippos or animals like that. Who knew how far this basket would go? Would it go down the Nile simply into the Mediterranean and be lost forever and drown? Or would that child be rescued somehow? And God in his providence watched over Moses. And so here you see God protects Moses as an infant at a time when a ruthless leader wanted to kill him. Does that remind you of another time or another person? I think of Jesus when Herod ordered the death of every newborn baby boy in Bethlehem because he feared the birth of a king. Moses' life is a type of Christ. There are many things in Moses' life that will point to Jesus. And we can see those connections when we look back. But here was Moses whose life was sovereignly, providentially spared because this was the person that God was going to use. Moses is taken into Pharaoh's court where he will grow up and he will be educated in Pharaoh's court. Moses' own mother, we read, is the one who will nurse him 
She's even going to be paid to take care of her own son in this dramatic turn of events. And no doubt, she prayed for Moses every day. As she saw him grow up and she loved him and nurtured him for the time that she would have him, she prayed for him and that God's hand would be upon him. It is an amazing story to think of Moses growing right up, uh, growing up right under Pharaoh's eyes. As Moses grows older, Moses will identify with his people. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, it says this. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. You know, rather than claiming an Egyptian identity and staying there and kind of hiding out where he would be protected... He chose to identify with his own people when he came to understand that he was Hebrew, a Hebrew boy who had been rescued from the Nile. And when he understood what had happened to all of those other boys at that time who were slaughtered by the order of Pharaoh, he chose to identify with the Israelites. We read that there is a day when Moses came upon an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite in this forced labor, working them as slaves. And he's angry, and in his anger, he looks each way to see if anybody's watching him, and he takes the Egyptian and he kills him, and he buries him in the sand. But his action is known. Here Moses is, he's a a man of about 40 at this time when this occurs, and he wants to deliver his people. But now is not the time, nor is this the way that God will do it. And when his murder is found out, Moses must flee for his own life. And he goes to live in Midian. Midian would be modern Saudi Arabia in that part of the Middle East. And Moses will spend the next 40 years on what is called the backside of the wilderness. You know, he's out there in no man's land. And he is taking care of sheep. And he is following them in the wilderness. It will be 40 years that in some ways to him will seem like, what am I doing? What am I doing out here? But it is 40 years of preparation for the work that God is calling him to. God calls Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses feels very unqualified to do it. Look at chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 1 to 12. It's on page 45 in the story in the middle of the page. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. To see a bush on fire in the desert was not unusual, but to see a bush that was not being consumed by the fire was indeed unusual. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, 
here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God is calling Moses to do an impossible task. To lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, who am I? I mean, who am I to go? Who's going to listen to me? Later in chapter 4, he's going to say too, God, you don't understand. I am slow of speech and tongue. It seems that Moses had a speech impediment of some sort or he stuttered and he's thinking, God, no one's going to listen to me. You know, from our lower story perspective, Moses was indeed unqualified. Here he was, he stuttered, slow of speech and tongue. He had no leadership ability, no leadership experience, excuse me, except for leading sheep in the wilderness for about 40 years. And he was wanted for murder in the very country where he was to go and say, let my people go. We can understand why Moses had some fears about this and some concerns. I mean, from our human perspective, it was nuts. It makes no sense at all that this individual would be the one who's going to lead them out of bondage. You know, when I think of Moses' speech impediment or his stuttering, I think of the movie that was made in recent years, The King's Speech. Many of you probably saw that. The King's Speech is the story of Bertie, the son of King George V who becomes the king of England when his brother Edward abdicates the throne. And all of this happens just as World War II is about to begin and England needs a leader. England needs a king who will lead them and rally them through this time along with the Prime Minister Winston Churchill. But Bertie is terrified of public speaking. Every time he gets up to speak in a public setting, he begins to stammer and stutter, and he feels like a fool. He is embarrassed by that. And the story is about a teacher who begins to help him to speak and to do that in a way that he can rally the people. By the grace of God, he will rise to lead England. He became King George VI, the father of Queen Elizabeth. 
there are those kind of examples where God has done extraordinary things through the life of an individual who felt totally unqualified. God seems to be in that business. The interesting thing about Moses' life is that when Moses thought he was qualified, he wasn't. You know, at the age of 40, when he thought maybe he could somehow deliver his people and he murdered the Egyptian and he thought maybe there's some way that they'll see I'm this leader and I can rally the troops and we're going to do this. He wasn't qualified in his pride and arrogance. And then came the point when Moses thought he wasn't qualified. He's 80 years old. He's just a shepherd. He's working out there in the wilderness far removed from anyone or anything. And now God says, you are qualified. You see, God sees Moses' weakness as a perfect opportunity to display God's strength. Why does God use weak, ordinary people? It's because then when he works, he gets the glory and all the world can see it. Our job qualifications are a little different from God's. We look at the external things. God looks at the heart. So what is it that God is looking for in us? What kind of people does he use? Well, God is looking for a heart that is willing and humble and obedient. It's not how great are our skills or gifts. It's not how big is our bank account or what we possess or the level of our education. God can use those things in a person's life, but what he is looking at first and foremost is our heart. Is it a heart that's fully devoted to him? Is it a heart that is willing to follow, that is humble and will give him the glory, that is obedient to the things that he asks us to do? There's an interesting comment in the book of Numbers about Moses. We believe that Joshua was the one who added this when Those first five books were recorded. It's put in parentheses in our Bibles, but Numbers 12.3 says that now Moses was a very humble man. More humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Moses didn't seek a position of greatness for himself. He was a servant, a man whom God would choose to use, and Moses knew that it was God who did it. Well, thirdly, what we see in this story is that God uses this opportunity to reveal three things about himself. He will reveal his name, his power, and his plan. First of all, God reveals his name to Moses in chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses said, suppose I go to them and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. In Hebrew, there are just four consonants. Y-H-W-H. It's been pronounced as Yahweh, but we really don't know the pronunciation of this name. What does it mean? It means I am the eternally existing one. I'm the one who's always been here and always will be. From eternity past to eternity future, God is God. He is without beginning or end. He remains the same. And here is this God who then reveals his name. The ancient Hebrews didn't want to take his name in vain, so they didn't pronounce it. They didn't put in the vowels because they didn't want to misuse the name of God. 
It was called in Hebrew Hashem, which means the name. The name. It was awesome. The name of God. Later on, when they did put in vowels, what they did was they took the vowels for the word Adonai, which means Lord, and they put them in between the Y and the H and the W and the H, and that's actually where we get kind of this transliteration or English word Jehovah. But that really wasn't the name of God. That wasn't the pronunciation that was put in. So when they saw those vowels and they were copying the Scriptures, in their mind they would say, Lord, Lord. In our English Bible, it's when Lord is all in capital letters that we have treated it that way so you can recognize this name of God. You see, the answer to Moses' objections was God. God gave him this promise that I will be with you. Moses, you can go and you can stand up before Pharaoh because I am with you. Moses, you can stand up to the armies of Egypt because I am with you. The answer to our problems is God also. Do you see that? The answer to the problems that we face is God. Jesus gives us this wonderful promise that I am with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us today. And He is the answer to the problems that we face too if we will put our hope and our trust in Him. You know, after Mike Lazat passed away, someone sent me a, a statement that he had put on the whiteboard up at North Branch in the school one day, and I thought it was really cool. Mike uh, put up on the board one day, he said, don't tell God the size of your problems. Tell your problems the size of your God. I think that's really good. Because we all are wrestling with things in our life, but what brings them down to size, it's the size of our God who is with us and who can enable us to meet the struggles that we are facing. You are not alone in your challenges. God is with you. And God will reveal His power through the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt. There will be the plague of the Nile turning to blood, the plague of frogs, of gnats, of flies, the death of the livestock, but not in Goshen. Not in Goshen. God makes a distinction between what He is doing in Egypt and in the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. There will be boils, there will be hail, there will be locusts, there will be darkness. There will be the death of the firstborn, but not in Goshen. God makes a distinction between the people of the world and His people. It is nearly impossible to overstate the impact that this would have had upon the Egyptians. I mean, each of these plagues were directed against different Egyptian gods. And their gods, Ra was the god of the sun. He's supposed to be the powerful one. And then you have this darkness that covers the earth. Where's their god? You have the gods of, of death, the gods of the Nile, the gods of, again, agriculture, fertility, and all of these gods are being put to shame. They are no gods at all because of Israel's God. 
God was not only punishing Pharaoh for his disobedience, he was showing his power over the Egyptian gods that he alone is the one true God and worthy of worship. In fact, his purpose in the plagues was evangelistic. In Exodus 7, 5, it says, And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then the Egyptians will know that I am God. You know, I thought about that, and I thought about when Gail and I had the opportunity to go to this unreached people group that we have had contact with in Southeast Asia, and we visited the home of a family in one of the villages there who had come to know Christ through the witness of people that we are working with. And the sign on the door to their home in this very humble setting, the sign on the door in their language proudly proclaimed, We worship the one true God. And their home was a place where people from that village would come in and out, and everyone who came in and out saw this sign that said, We worship the one true God. Would we be so bold? You know, would we put that on the doorpost of our house and say to all of our neighbors and all of our friends who and everyone who enters that that we worship God, the one true God and Him alone? That's what was being declared here. That's what God wanted the Israelites to know. And finally, God would demonstrate His power in the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army as he demonstrated his power over the Egyptians. And then, thirdly, God revealed his plan of salvation in the tenth plague, which required the shedding of a lamb's blood. It's the origin of Passover. It's found in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, It's on pages 50 to 52 in the story. And I'm going to read part of it today, and I'm going to read it from the story, so if it's a little harder to follow along in your Bibles, just you can listen to what I'm going to share here. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight, and make sure that you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go through Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. And tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. 
Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. It is the Lord's Passover. And on that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It is a statement about what was going to do that very night. How would God answer the problem of man's sin? It would be by the blood of a lamb. And when they took that blood and they had killed that innocent lamb and they had gathered his blood in a bucket or a pot, they would take that blood and they would put it on the top of their doorposts. And then they would dip and they would put it on the sides of that doorpost. Rabbi Ed Rothman was the one who first talked about, look at that motion when they put the blood on the top and then they put it on each side. It's a sign of the cross that they are making, hidden even in the symbolism of what they were doing. You see, Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who died as a sacrifice for our sins. John would say of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But only those whose doorposts are covered by the blood would be saved. You see, the point of the story here is that we are in the same situation as Israel. We are enslaved by our sin and powerless to free ourselves. In order to be free, we must have the blood of Jesus cover the doorpost of our heart. If the destroyer, if death came tonight and our doorpost was not covered and our sins were not covered, we would die and be forever separated from God in hell. Have you asked Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, to cover your sin? What do we learn from this chapter of the story? We learn that God never forgets His promises or His people. And He responds when they cry out for help. We learn that earthly powers are no match for God's power. It may feel from our lower story perspective like cruel leaders are in power or that we are being oppressed or that things are just not right in this world. But God is in control. And the Passover is a clear picture of the sacrificial lamb as an atonement for sin. It points to Jesus as that perfect lamb of God who died for our sins. Let's pray. Father, there is just so much here and it is so powerful. To think that these things were written for our benefit so that we might know and understand what you were preparing us for. Jesus, thank you that you are that Lamb of God who died to pay the penalty for our sins. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who's not sure of their salvation, that you would ask Jesus to be that one who covers your sin, confess it to him, and invite him to be your Savior and Lord. And he will take you at your word and begin a new relationship with you. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.